This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Some attention. So yeah, this morning we have Ruth Myram's talking. She's going to be giving a chat about community-led co-design. We're a bit late, so we'll kick straight off. Oh yeah, go on. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Good morning, everyone. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people, the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future, and to particularly welcome any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. And welcome to everyone. It's my first UX Australia. I'm very excited to be here. Before I start into my topic about community-led co-design, I thought I should introduce myself because you may be wondering, you know, who is this girl and what, what um, authority does she have to speak about what she's speaking about today? So I'm a scientist. You can see me up there in the top left with my big magnet. Um, my PhD was on magnetic resonance of cell death signaling proteins. A little bit removed from UX, but I'll tell you the story of how I got there. Um, that's me with my PhD bonnet, not Harry Potter impersonation, although it may appear. Um, there's some pictures up there too of my work with Indigenous communities, and I'd particularly like to point out um, the two photos of, or the three photos of my team in Canberra. So the topics I'm talking about today are very collaborative. Um, the material is not all mine. So I'd really like to acknowledge the PwC Indigenous Consulting team. Um, that's where I work at the moment. And I'd like to take just two seconds to explain what it is because I particularly joined this um, business because it's a design and innovation company. It's majority Indigenous owned. It's the only national consulting company that is. Most of my colleagues, more than 70% are Indigenous people. So I'm definitely in the minority we also have a majority female board and majority female leadership. So um, we live and breathe diversity, and that's um, why I'm here able to talk about what I'm talking about today. Uh, to be clear, though, I'm not Indigenous, and I do not seek to speak for Indigenous communities. I work for an Indigenous company, and I have been given custodianship of some knowledge which I have permission to share, and I hope it's useful to you. I take that custodianship very seriously, and I hope you will as well. But I want to be very clear that I do not speak for other cultures. So the most attractive thing, I think, about linking communities with co-design is the ability to turn self-determination into action. So if you've heard any politician or almost anyone talk about Indigenous communities, they'll talk about self-determination. But what does it actually mean to determine what you are going to do and to determine for yourself what you'll do? Up on the slide is a picture of the framework that we use in our company, and self-determination is layered. It's about individual, community, and culture. It's about understanding what someone really wants and enabling them to get it in their future. I think as designers, that's exactly what we do. We, do, we turn self-determination into action for communities. So I really encourage you to think about um, self-determination as an action. I don't want to necessarily dwell on um, our framework in itself, but I think considering how service design, empathy or walking in someone else's shoes and prototyping are all ways of enabling self-determination through co-design. It's something that, as designers, we can take when we work with communities. So to introduce you to self-determination as action, um, I want to throw the stage to Adam Briggs and Charlie Pickering, who unfortunately couldn't be here today, but luckily they pre-recorded a video for us um, on the weekly. So Charlie Pickering, I'm sure you've heard of, is a journalist. Adam Briggs is a prominent Indigenous singer, actor, um, and social advocate. So give me two seconds to just grab the video. Hi, 
Supporters of constitutional recognition for Aboriginal people want a preamble added to the Constitution acknowledging that Australia's first people were Australia's first people. And we could be voting on it soon. The Prime Minister says it could be feasible to have a referendum on Indigenous constitutional recognition in 2017, but the language of any referendum needs to be meaningful. Ah, meaningful. So much for my original suggestion. Aboriginal people were totes here first. <laughs> for more on this, let's fire up the satellite and cross to our Aboriginal correspondent all the way from Indigenous Australia, Adam Briggs. Thanks, Charlie. Uh, hey, I appreciate the sentiment, but... I'm not from Uluru, I'm from Shepparton in Victoria. Can I get the Emerald Bank Leisureland? <laughs> ancient windmill. Yeah, it looks good, looks good. Uh, so, Briggsy, why, why is constitutional recognition a priority? Well, the Constitution doesn't mention Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people at all. When you first showed up here, we were treated like flora and fauna. To you, this whole place was the botanical gardens. You were wandering around like, ooh, that's a nice tree. Hey. That's not a nice tree. That's Doug. And B, why are you shooting that tree? <laughs> OK, so we just put in an acknowledgement and that seems easy enough. Yeah, why not? There's more. You also need to remove the racist parts of the Constitution. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What parts are racist? The racist parts. Oh. Like that bit in Section 51 about how you can make laws for people based on their race. Or Section 25 where you can stop people from voting based on their race. Well, that, that does sound pretty racist, yeah. Uh, well, I'm convinced. Let's do this, Briggsy. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not sure if this is a good idea yet. Some people feel like recognition means nothing without reform. You can't just recognise and move on. That's like going, hey, black man, I see you there. That's good Indigenous. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I recognise your point, but let's move on. Uh, what's, what's the alternative? New Zealand, Canada and the United States all have legally enforceable treaties, but we don't. It's like equal marriage, but you don't have a Facebook filter for it. Mm, that, that's, no, that's a really good point. That's a, can, we get, can I get a filter, please, to show I care about this? Can we? Wait, that's great. That is good. That's excellent. Nice. There we that's go. not enough, Charlie. Come but, 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 Briggsy, you, you might not understand that this is how we, in, in my culture, show that we care about something. You have to need more than that, Chuck. Yeah, but I've only got one display, Briggsy, and I'm already worried that the people of Paris are worried I've forgot about them. <laughs> you know, what, what more can I do? Just make sure you vote the right way in the referendum. OK, then. Which, which way should we vote? The right way. The power's in your hands, white people. You know, <laughs> like always. Uh, thank you very much, Briggsy. Great stuff. Welcome to the show. Okay, so I wanted to play that to you to show the complexity of some of the issues we face. And I think as a non-Indigenous person working in an Indigenous company, in an Indigenous community, um, I've made a lot of mistakes and learned a lot of lessons. And I'd much prefer for someone else to present their point of view. But I want to share with you some of the mistakes I have made and some of the lessons I've learned. Because what I'd really like at the end is for everyone to walk away feeling like they understand their place in addressing some of the issues these communities face and how we can do our part. So I think... The most important um, part of working with Indigenous communities as a non-Indigenous person is understanding our assumptions and bias and how we address them. So this is very text-heavy. Apologies for anyone, but you don't have to look at it. You can listen. Um, but these are the key biases, I think, in the six or so years that I've been working in this sector that I've really had to face and really had to address. So the first one is understanding what self-determination really means. 
Hopefully what I've spoken about has started to bring some of that up, but I want to give another quick example of self-determination in a different field. So I'm sure, is anyone here not heard of the census travesty? Has anyone been living under a rock? No. So prior to the DDoS or whatever went on the night of the census, there was a quite a uh, vocal discussion about whether we should be giving this much data to the government and whether we should be doing so electronically. Do people hear about this debate as well? This is an issue of self-determination. We are saying we don't want to be compelled to give our data. We want to be able to choose who we give it and how we use it, and we don't actually trust you to do what you're saying you're going to do with it. That was the data community asserting self-determination. So this is what self-determination is, and we, often if we're in the dominant community, we don't realise we're asserting it all the time. But giving self-determination to other people means recognising that they have that right too. Secondly, there's the role of ceremony and the perceived onus of cultural education. So I'm sure people have seen Indigenous ceremonies and dances and people are very generous in sharing their culture. But we can make the mistake sometimes of thinking that means ceremony is a performance and it's not. It's a ritual, it's a spiritual activity and we need to understand that and be quite respectful of it. There's also the onus of cultural education. So often um, with the best of intentions, we can be very curious and want to know things, but we have to be mindful of the person we're asking questions to. How often do they get asked these questions? Is it their role to educate me or should I educate myself? Thirdly, um, challenging our assumptions, particularly I'd like to highlight in this community around digital literacy and digital access. So if you're interested in this topic, um, Bronwyn Carlson from the University of Wollongong has done some excellent research, research into cultural identity in the online space and how we take our culture into online. In fact, we actually are more emphatic, emphatically cultural in an online space than we are in a physical space, according to her research. So um, I think people who haven't worked with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities often think that digital literacy and access is low, and that's not always the case. It just may not look like how it looks like for us. Second, uh, fourthly would be talking about cultural understandings of value. So value is not just money. Um, and I think we all know that or we wouldn't be doing the jobs we do. But value might be a completely different understanding. It might be connected to place and it might have a different time frame from the, val the way we understand value. So considering how other people may think about value. The link between success and privilege. So I'd like to just talk a little bit about the people I work for. I'm, I feel very lucky to work where I work. But the people I work for, the Indigenous leaders of my company and other Indigenous leaders in Australia, haven't necessarily had the um, privilege that I walk around with. They're not necessarily set up for success in the way some of us are. So the fact that they're successful is excellent, but it also means they're the most strategic, the most hardworking, um, the most collaborative people I've probably ever met. So thinking, firstly checking our own privilege, but then thinking when we meet other people, what's their place and what are the skills they've had to have to get where they are. Um, as designs that encourage us to use the five whys on all our assumptions. So sometimes we can see something as it is and then we go, oh, but why is it like that? And why do I think it is like that? So using our own skills on ourselves to check our assumptions is really important. Um, there's the issue of what it means to identify as Indigenous. So um, I think there's, there's a lot of space given for diversity of voice in 
the white community, it's not often afforded to minorities. There's a lot, there can be stigma associated with identifying with Indigenous as being Indigenous. Sometimes this is related to intergenerational trauma and things that might have happened in families. There's the issue of self-identification, what it meant to identify 30 years ago to the government, what it means to identify now. So we have to be aware that um, people may or may not want to identify and, and if they do, um, there may be issues around that for them personally. The, issue, the issues or the problems that some Indigenous communities face are broader than the fact they're Indigenous. They're not Indigenous issues and they're not always just Australian issues. So there's a lot of comparison um, with other cultures and other countries and even other groups within Australia. So not pigeonholing people to only that place. There's a focus on the problem space in Indigenous communities and people who live in a traumatised community don't generally need to be told what their problems are. They usually live it every day, so they're pretty across it. We, as designers, I think we have the real chance to focus on possibility and lift people's thinking up. We don't need to go and tell them what their problems are. They know that. What we have to help is build a possibility for the future. We also have to be aware that we can't always look for easy fixes. So where communities are traumatised and have problems, this has taken a long time to get there. There have been 200-odd years of colonialism to get us where we are. It's not just going to get fixed in five seconds. And that includes if we hand over to Indigenous leadership to try and identify these problems. Some of them will take time and we have to make space for that. There's a connection to country and community and culture. So um, for Indigenous people, country is not just about the place you walk on. It's spiritual. It's linked to their understanding of family and identity. So being respectful of what culture, country and community mean and how they link is really important. Um, and finally, there's uh, what we assume we know about demographics and location. So often if you talk about Indigenous communities, people think regional and remote. But more than 80% of Indigenous Australians live in urban areas. So we have to um, think about what, what we think when we mean demographics and when we mean location. I like to use this as an example. So every single person you can see on this slide, um, if you can see all of them or even just their arm or leg, is an Indigenous Australian. So there's people here from um, every state all across the country and this is what the face of modern Indigenous Australia looks like. So um, we can't make assumptions based on appearance or anything like that in terms of demographics. So, And some of these are my co-workers and they're all awesome. So coming specifically to design, now that I've sort of said general working with Indigenous communities, some tips and some things that I've had to learn... I want to talk about Indigenous design and Indigenous approaches to design. So um, I'd like to just put this timeline up to give us a perspective on Indigenous innovation. So in Australia, Indigenous history goes back 100,000 years or so, depending on whose archaeological record you believe. That innovation has sustained this country across ice ages, climate change, cultural upheaval, um, agrarian uh, development. So there's, uh, if anyone's read Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe, there's evidence that... Uh, baking and agrarian um, production of grains started in Australia tens of thousands of years before it did in the Middle East and Europe. So when you work with communities, they, there is a long perspective of innovation and understanding of how to implement that sustainably, and this includes design. So rather than me telling you about how this benefits community, I'd like to um, throw the stage again to some of my Indigenous colleagues. So this particular video comes from a project which I'll go into in some detail afterwards that was aimed at reforming the child protection system in Queensland. Um, the interim results of this are published on the Queensland Government website, so I'm not releasing anything that's you know, not allowed to be public. Um, 
it's perhaps one of the most uh, challenging spaces you could take design into is child protection in remote Indigenous communities. Um, and I want to let them tell the story of what happened. The aim of the design jam is to look at um, an accelerated co-design process with a, a diverse range of stakeholders from, from government, NGOs and, and community members. It's about having rich, open, robust discussions in small groups. It's very futures focused. We all know what the issues are in this space. We don't need to sit here for days talking about the issues. But what we're saying to people is your voice is valuable to us. Um, we develop the, the way that we run it in a very safe environment. People feel that they can speak openly and freely and it's all about the future, the future of their communities and the future of children and families. First and foremost I've felt that it's been um, a very safe environment to um, contribute my thoughts and my experiences and uh, my, yeah, my contributions I guess to the design jam and it's been safe because it's been led by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that actually understand the space that, that we work in uh, and that's very, very important in terms of some of the sensitivities that we've, we've been talking about. I think the design jams have been fantastic with the fact that it's out of the comfort zone of people who usually run these things, as in it's out here in community. Here in far north Queensland, it's actually at Weepa, which allows people from Naprinam and all the nearby surrounding communities to actually attend. So it's getting that participation of people at the local level that's really interesting. Um, those people who aren't from here, maybe that's the part where they're a bit out of their comfort zone, but it's beautiful because it's led by community. I think typically, you know, you would come together, you would actually listen to, a, I guess, a number of speakers. The consultation would be perhaps a bit superficial and even tokenistic. This is really much more involved in terms of the collaboration, and that's collaboration of service providers, um, community members and decision makers, and I guess influences from community. So that's such a, I guess, a rich and important aspect of, I think, of design jams, and I guess the difference between them and what would typically, you know, take place in a one-and-a-half-day kind of um, you know, forum, I guess. Yeah, I think um, for me I'm fairly new with all this stuff, but um, it was quite interesting, good experience, and um, for someone my age I think that um, all the young people my age should be looking into things like this. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. From my perspective it feels really different from previous consultations. Um, I think that uh, it's very hard, especially when you're working in, in Indigenous communities, to really honour where everyone is coming from and also the voices that they, um, that they have because people talk and respond in different ways. Well, I think that's really important because um, it just makes the whole experience so much more authentic. You're talking to people who have direct, everyday, grassroots experience all the issues uh, and it just has that genuine feel to it and you know that it's coming from people's direct experience and, and from the heart and um, you're able to discuss in a very open and frank way. Also as part of the process we don't believe in having a structured agenda. We don't come with any preconceived ideas of what the, the consultation or findings might be. We've done our research as part of the project. Um, we know what may or may not come out but we just give people a safe 
area to discuss those issues. In my experience as well, consultation to our people who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander almost becomes a dirty word of being asked and asked and asked, consulted and consulted. We are the most consulted group of people in Australia. Then the dilemma of why our people feel they're over-consulted or it becomes a dirty word is it ends up being meaningless to them. When they're asked information, they're given information, but they don't see where that's gone. What are the results? How does it, how do they benefit from it in their lives, everyday lives? And felt listened to, I think, you yes. know, that's the most important part is that, that a consultation includes listening, deep listening, and um, then reflecting back exactly what is intended in that consultation. So confirming that the information was heard right and documented correctly. What we'd hope to get out of here is that um, there's a service system that is, there's a real partnership between government and non-government, and I mean real partnership, uh, that we all actually um, share the risk and the responsibilities um, and that we're accountable then back to communities for what we're actually providing or doing within those communities. A well-structured uh, model to, you know, for everybody to work, to work you know, towards the same goal and that is to um, ensure the child and parents are stable in their, in their you know, living environment and know that there are services there in the community and the resources on hand to help them in any scenario. I guess in, in summary, it's, it's much more than just uh, what we would say a talk fest. Uh, it's not, not another workshop. It's not just talking for the sake of talking and coming up with some esoteric ideas around things that may or may not work. Uh, it's really about driving change and getting stuff that's going to be actionable after, the, after these, these jams. So from here, uh, as, as Georgie said, we'll run into this design phase. These things will be validated with community. We'll come back to community uh, and that'll be validated before we look at any further steps. Uh, these last two days, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's, it was good to see that um, all us mob got together and the, the ideas that came out of this in the last two days was just absolutely amazing. Um, my hat's off to everyone and uh, especially the team that came down and uh, really helped us find our true potential in, in getting ideas across the table. So picking up on some of the points that people brought up there, and I think it's really important to let people speak for themselves and speak in their own words, but taking um, some of the points that I think are the real benefits for both communities and government of designing and creating together. Um, there's self-empowerment and self-action, and this is really important because communities, some communities, in this case the remote communities, have often been um, disempowered and discouraged to act. Um, sorry grab my cards because I've got some examples that I really want to share with you and make sure I get the right ones. So an example of, of this self-empowerment and self-action that I've seen recently is out of one of these um, workshops that we did in remote Queensland, a group of women, their solution for child protection was a women's centre. So in the two days we had with them, they designed it completely and we really, as a team, challenged their thinking on it. what's the business model, how would you fund it, how would you get off the government funding treadmill. They came up in two days with a complete business model, a design for how it would work for communities and they're currently building that in a building they had already sitting empty. So instead, even though that was a government funded project and was designed to 
you know, to redesign how government would work, people went away with a solution that they could implement. So it was really self-empowering and encouraging self-action. It encourages people to focus on possibility, as Donnie said at the end, and I think he covered it better than I could. Um, it can build consensus, consensus between government and community on both what needs to happen and, importantly, how it needs to happen. So communities, as Karen mentioned, have been over-consulted, and that's always, what do you think of this? What should we do? What needs to change? It's not how it should happen, and it's in the how that design excels, and that's where we can all fit in as a design community. In these over-consulted communities, it can rebuild trust and hope for change because instead of getting an email from someone in Brisbane or you know, a brief visit, someone's there, they're listening to them, they're designing with them. That also brings with it an onus for further action because if you have built hope and trust in someone, you have a responsibility then to go and enact what you've designed together. It inspires entrepreneurship. So you would have heard from John there and seen him sketching wireframes. Um, we then took the wireframes into digital in a prototyping app, which he is now using in community to prototype other apps to help other community issues with the kids that he mentors. So he's already said, I see a possibility for that and I see how I'm going to create something from it. It connects people who otherwise wouldn't connect. I think as... Um, we all know as designers and as Denise picked up on this morning, the more diverse your group, the more diversity of thought you have and that builds connections across community that may not have otherwise happened. So in WEPA, that video I showed, there was a senior government official there and a person who runs a women's shelter. They got to talking and the woman who runs the shelter said, listen, um, a shelter has to be a place of shelter. It has to be better than what you're leaving. Our shelter has had broken air conditioning for quite a long time and no one wants to come here in 40 degree heat. The woman from the government who was very senior was able to fast track new air conditioning and create a shelter environment that felt safer and more comfortable. So because of that connection, they were able to see a problem and solve it. Importantly, design solves the right problem in the right place. And the importance of place for communities cannot be overstated. So with those Queensland examples and other ones, going into someone's place, it's both um, building empathy from a design perspective, but it's honouring people and place from a culture perspective as well. And as I mentioned earlier, ties to country are very important. It gives communities opportunities to link to mainstream. So instead of being an Indigenous issue, this creates it as an issue for everyone. And it also, by making it real and putting faces to names, it helps get beyond that, I am here to help you. It's, we are here to work together. Um, from a government perspective, it delivers efficiency through pra practical and purposeful outcomes. So um, there's often no shortage of money in some of these communities, and the issue is how, how that works and how it's spent. By solving for the right problem, you actually end up with a more efficient outcome. It builds understanding and accountability between community and government. So the community is accountable to government. And importantly, the government is accountable back to community for what they do. And people are accountable to each other, you know, from not-for-profits as well. And that's really important, that accountability is two-way. And finally, design invests in community rather than extracting from it. So often consultation can be an extractive exercise. I go there to get something that I need, be that validation or information or whatever. Design brings something to community and says, let's build together. So it's an investment rather than an extraction. 
I just want to briefly touch on some of the challenges because hopefully I've sold you on all the benefits of design, but it's not without its challenges and you don't get to solve big problems unless you make big investments. So from my experience, these are some of the challenges we've faced. Um, firstly is can we overcome cynicism? So over-consulted communities, lots of different solutions, policies and programs going in. Are we able to actually you know, crack that cynical layer and get people to look at things with a new lens? Is it just more of the same? Do we have or can we build authentic relationships? Um, and often this is quite quickly. Do we know people? Have we got people to get us into that community? Are we culturally minded in all our decisions? So this includes things like who are our facilitators if we're running a workshop? So even if I'm designing it, am I the right person to facilitate it? So you would have seen in the video we had all Indigenous facilitators in that workshop because that was appropriate. And in all our decisions, are we thinking of um, culture first and foremost? Can we visualise and share with people what they will experience before they go through the process? This is both um, you know, from a government side but also from a community side. And I think it's something as designers that is always a challenge for us. The first time you want to take someone through this, they're like, you want to do what with me? Um, but can we get them across the line so that they are supportive? Um, can we overcome the fear of creative process and unknown? So when you go into a community and you do co-design, you're automatically saying, I don't actually know what we're going to get at the end. The community is going to design it with us. And trying to convince a government agency who are under their own pressures in terms of reporting and you know, public scrutiny that you're going to go in, you're going to do this process that's a bit unfamiliar and you're going to get something that you don't know what it is right now, convincing them to come on board can be quite difficult, so that's always a challenge. Can we prove social impact and do we even need to? So if we need to prove social impact, how are we going to measure that? How are we going to baseline it? Do we actually have to prove social impact? Are the policies or what's going on there now producing any social impact? If they're not, do we have an onus to do so? Are we solving for the right problem? So I touched on that earlier. Have we looked at what the problem behind the problem is and we're not just scratching the surface and solving the symptoms and not actually treating the cause? Are we, how are we defining and measuring success and are there perverse outcomes from success? So let me give you an example here. Um, in New South Wales, um, or across Australia, particularly under the previous Abbott government, there was a big push on getting Indigenous kids into school. That's an excellent outcome. We know what education does for people and how it advances um, life outcome long term. But... For communities, and particularly for remote communities, going to school and finishing school can mean having to leave your family and go to a different town and live with different people and be disconnected from place, family, community and culture. Is that a good outcome from success? It's a question. Finally, and this is a more personal one, is are we emotionally invested enough to honour the issues? So after that um, experience up in Queensland where you saw the video... Um, we were all emotionally exhausted, it, and we should be. You shouldn't be there talking to people about child removal without being emotionally invested. It, it should feel heavy to be there. So are we emotionally invested? We won't get the outcomes if we're not. But have we allowed enough recovery time for ourselves personally and for our team to enable us to keep going? We're not helpful to anyone if we burn ourselves out. So just briefly, I want to touch on our design approach that's worked. So everyone will know the double diamond. I'm not going to go through it in any detail. I just want to um, mention that it exists. 
and get into our design process. So this is what we use and this is what's worked well with community. And I'd encourage you to consider it and you know, potentially consider picking it up. So we start on, the, um, on your left, I think, with dreaming. So dreaming is, what could this project be? It touches on what Indigenous dreaming might be and also how we dream together as a group. It's all about looking at the future, looking back into the past and understanding um, the possibility space around where we are. Then we enter this cycle of iteration. So we go into a discover phase, you know, very similar to, any, to the discover phase in the double diamond. We go and we look for information. It is a divergent process. Then we come into a define phase. This is a convergent process, similar to the double diamond. We distill, we get um, information. Then we go into a develop phase. And develop can be digital or non-digital. And this is what are the solutions? What from the information we have do we think our best solutions are? Let's develop them out. Then we go into a dialogue phase. Okay, we think we've got this solution. We need to go and talk to people about it and see if it works. We can go through that four-phase iteration many times. That's why it's in a circle. Um, and we often find um, twice, like the double diamond, might not be enough. We might have to go three or four times through that. When we've got to the end of that, and we'll know that because of our dialogue with community, and they will, it'll be very clear we've you know, got to a consensus and a solution. We then go into a distill phase. And this is about documenting it, sharing it, um, giving it back to potentially government if need be, or, or a you know, corporate organisation, um, but taking what we've learned and making sure we're passing it on to someone else. As knowledge holders, we have a duty to share it. So that's our design process. It's worked really well. You can ask questions later if you want to. To close, I want to finish with a challenge to you. So Indigenous knowledge, design and innovation has sustained communities in Australia in this place for tens of thousands of years. It gives us insight and wisdom which we can use to address the most complex challenges we face today. How do you engage and what part do you play? Thank you. Working. Fascinating, fascinating subject. Um, cool. I'm sure there's going to be loads of questions. Who wants to go first? Hands up. Oh, I knew it would be miles away. <laughs> Um, thank you very much for all the thought that you put into that uh, presentation. It was really insightful. Um, I had a question. The bit at the end where you talked about the challenges and um, the the expectation about, um, you know, especially government clients about how do we know what's going to come out. Can you talk a little bit more about your tactics for managing those expectations? Because I think there's a lot of domains where... That's a, that, that's a common challenge in a lot of different domains. Yeah, sure. So I'm, I should have said at the beginning, I'm Canberra-based, so almost all my work is with government. So that expectation management from a design perspective is something that I understand from the working with Indigenous communities but also in other design um, projects. Um, the way I tend to manage it is, um, one, you have to get them to trust you so you have to, um, and your team, so you have to be authentic, not promise things you, you, know, you can't deliver. Secondly is trying to define sort of a general sandbox of where you can play. It's like we're going to be creative and we're going to do design and we're going to play, but we will guarantee that you'll get something out of the end. It might you know, be a playbook that's 40 pages long and it will consist of addressing one, two, three things and some other stuff that you haven't thought of yet. So I think trying to balance what you, you can reasonably see you will deliver with flexibility to be creative is kind of um, the balance. But, yeah, it is always a challenge. And I think um, 
if you've got examples you can present to, like government, in my experience, you know, particularly around now where innovation is everywhere, they love to be cutting edge, but they don't want to be bleeding edge. So if you can say, oh, look, it's going to be really innovative, it's going to be super cool, but these guys have done it over here already, so it's pretty safe and you'll be okay, um, you know, they tend to come on board. And I think acknowledging the pressure that they have too, like the reason they're risk-adverse or perceived as risk-adverse are the often higher standards they're held to. No one wants to be up in Senate estimates going, why did we spend that money on that, you know, creative thing that did nothing, um, or on the front page of the papers. So recognising that that's their working environment, that's the scrutiny they're held to and the reason for it and going, I can, I can understand that and I can help you meet it and we'll be creative together in this way is how we overcome it. Yeah. Great. Oh, lots of questions. questions I'll jump down here first <laughs> Um, it's always a struggle when you're introducing design thinking, co-design to groups that aren't familiar with it. So there's always that awkward moment in the, in the beginning, a bit of a deer in the headlights moment. What am I doing now? Um, you mentioned before that with the Indigenous communities, there's uh, that they were the most collaborative group of people that you'd ever worked with before. Um, that initial moment when you were running those workshops, was it a struggle or was it actually just quite seamless? Um it's really interesting, actually. So in my experience across a number of projects, I think um, Indigenous communities are, because of the way culture works, they're almost predisposed to design thinking anyway because decisions aren't... There's very rarely one person making a decision. It's got to work for the community. You've always got to be thinking, it's not just me acting for myself. How is this going to affect my family? How is it going to affect my kin? You know, all this kind of thing. So I think um, the way I often frame it is that uh, this is how you work anyway. We're just wrapping a language around it that other people from other cultures like me can understand. And that seems to resonate a lot. And then all you're doing is introducing tools to sort of what's happening anyway. So in some ways I feel like design's actually getting back to culture as opposed to introducing a new frame. Hi. Um, <clears throat> I was just wondering, when you're in the discover phase, how do you factor in the fact that some knowledge that could help design a better solution might be sacred knowledge that can't be shared with whitefellas? Yep. Uh, so I think if you have to be respectful of that, people are choosing not to share it with you for a good reason. Um, but if people are brought into the outcome of the design process, I think you'll get a lot of what you need for that anyway. So I haven't ever encountered a problem where someone said, I won't give you that piece of information. Now, there may be things I don't know I'm not getting, um, but you just have to get people invested in the outcome and then trust that they give you what they think you need. And that's a, a self-determination question, I guess. But discovery is a challenge in Indigenous communities um, and Indigenous work, particularly around any kind of data due to... Um, small statistical samples, the issue of identification and, you know, does that get everyone um, changes in definitions over time, so anything longitudinal is difficult. So often the challenges like that fit within a broader sort of data challenge. So, got time for a couple more. I reckon I saw a hand go up there. I was thinking, look at the images of people sitting in that um, design jam thing. That's amazing that you got them all there. And I just wanted... To hear a little bit more about how do you persuade them to even come into this room? Maybe it's not what I'm seeing, but I'm, I know a little bit about that story, and I can imagine that some people in that room will find it really difficult sitting next to the police officer mm. who is part of that system. How do you deal with that pain? So in that particular project, so I was the only non-Indigenous person in our team of nine, um, and I only did design stuff. I didn't facilitate. I didn't get community engagement. 
We made a decision as a team that it was not appropriate to have people in the midst of a child protection issue present, that it was just... And so that's in some ways second-level co-design, but it's just not respectful and it's, it's not productive. If people are there worried about what's happening to their child, they're not thinking about co-design. So we made a decision, therefore, to get everyone who supports those people. So they do this every day. So they're the, um, you know, the wraparound. Um, having said that, many of them, and indeed many of my colleagues, actually are, have personal experience in their families of that anyway. So having um, those people facilitate it, the two facilitators you saw actually have you know, family links to some of these communities, having them facilitate it and them make the invitation. So when I said, have you got those authentic relationships? If I wrapped up and said, hey, I'm here and let's come along to this thing, they'd be like, who is this girl? But having people who go, I know this community, I know you, you knew my parents, our you know, cousins related to each other, come along to this, it really matters, it's, you know, we're really going to listen, we're going to take it back to government and present it to them. Um, that's how we did it. And they, the people um, who did that, spent a number of months doing that legwork. So I think that to have that, you're exactly right, that the setup was long and involved. But so design's not a silver bullet in that way, right? You can't just rock up and go, here's my design suitcase and I unpacked it and two days later, amazing. It's, it took an investment and a setup, but design is worth it because it can produce those transformative outcomes. Great. We'll do one more question and I think we've got to wrap it up, otherwise, I'll be way over schedule <laughs> thanks that, that was an amazing talk and a very respectful talk um, oh, thank so you. thank you for how you presented that um, this one we might need to take it to a break um, but I would be curious from the experience that you've had if there, if there are people who are designers from Anglo backgrounds from, from any other you know, racial background who genuinely wanted to participate in the, um, the solving of this kind of wicked problem I know you, you selected, you know, eight out of your nine team were from Indigenous backgrounds. Do you think that, that it is possible for people from other racial backgrounds to really, you know, engage and um, be part of the solution? Or do you think it's really something the Indigenous community needs to own themselves? Um, I'm really glad you asked that question. I'm really glad it's the last question too. <laughs> um, I think absolutely there's a role for them. So part of the reason I put up all those photos of me is I'm not it particularly special and I didn't go oh I need to get involved with indigenous communities I just sort of fell into it through a series of career decisions but um and personal decisions actually let's be honest um, but I have never encountered if you approach respectfully um to people and where they're at I haven't I've actually had more questions about what are you doing you're not indigenous in that space from non-indigenous people who are like why, why are you there um there is such a need to address some of these issues that people who are respectful and willing to help and aren't going, I'm here and I've got solutions, but are going, hey, I've got some skills and some tools that might be useful here and I want to work with you. I've never encountered um, resistance to that if it's done respectfully. So I think there is, and there's a need. You know, the reason I put in an abstract here is I think there's a real need for it and I think the skills we have as a design community can really produce transformative outcomes. So I want to encourage everyone, if you're... You know, if you have an interest, get involved, reach out to people, you know, reach out to me if you're interested. Um, because, yeah, there's a massive interest and a hunger for it. So. Great, cool. fantastic. What Thank a great you. talk. Thanks. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.